You know, riding a stationary bike is boring. It's tedious, it's monotonous, it's repetitive. But that is sort of how life is, isn't it? That's sort of how life works when we get the wrong perspective going. Uh, I came across an interesting study recently. A few, a few years back, uh, researchers at John Hopkins University asked over 8,000 college students at 48 different universities this question. They, they said, what is very important to you? What matters most to you? And they gave them a whole bunch of options like, you know, uh, making a lot of money or developing a great career or uh, buying a house or, or becoming married or something like that. And I can tell you this, the, the, the results were, were staggering to me, at least personally. It was very interesting because only 16% of the respondents said that it was very important to their lives if they made a lot of money and developed a great career. Only 16%. But get this, over 75%, over 75% of the respondents said that it was incredibly important to them to find meaning and purpose for their life. I mean, to me, that is a compelling bit of research, isn't it? I think most of us, at one time or another, feel this way, that we want to discover meaning and purpose for our life. Would you agree that that's important to you? That's important to humanity. And friends, let me tell you something. If you have ever felt that way, if you have ever wondered what your purpose is, what what the meaning of your life personally is, I think you've come to the right study. I think you've come to the right place. Because over the next several weeks together, we're going to unpack a book that tries to get around the idea of finding meaning in a very meaningless existence. And and the book we're going to study... Uh, is, is an incredibly compelling book. It, it, it's a, actually a very ancient part of the Old Testament part of the Bible. Ecclesiastes is, is the name of the book, and, and it's been dubbed by many readers as the strangest book in the Bible because the bulk of this book, if you were to read it, is simply the rant of one man. It's the rant of a man who is very dissatisfied with life. It's the rant of a man who is struggling to find his own meaning and purpose in life. It's the entire book is from the perspective of one man who's writing about his memoirs and his observations about the brokenness and how messed up life really is. And you're going to find, if you were to read this book straight through, you would find that it's rather depressing. I mean, there is very little hope inside of this book, kind of like riding a stationary bike, Right? Studying the book of Ecclesiastes can be a bit of a challenge, so I'm not sure if you've got much of a Bible background, but my goal is to kind of help you a little bit, because if you were to jump into the book of Ecclesiastes and just start reading it straight through without any context or background, I think you would become depressed too. Uh, it'd be like jumping off, like not knowing how to swim, but jumping off some high bridge into a raging water and hoping you can figure out how to swim when you hit the water. It just won't work out well. And if you read this book without any little backdrop, I, I think it, it would not end well for you. I think that you would get a little confused about where you are supposed to end with this book. And so my hope is um, I want to help you out a little bit. I want to catch you up on some of the context and background to the book of Ecclesiastes. Would that be okay if we kind of just start there? Okay. And, And so for starters, this book is a very, very old book. It was written a thousand years before Jesus was even born. Think about that. The book we're going to read and talk about over the next several weeks was written over 3,000 years ago, and we're still reading it today. How crazy is that? I'm pretty confident that that will not be said of Fifty Shades of Grey or Harry Potter, right? No way on earth, 3,000 years later, we're going to be reading that junk, okay? But, but let, me say, let me say this. 
What's really amazing, though, about this very ancient book of, of literature, it, it predates all of the great philosophers that we attribute to life, right? The great philosophers like Plato's and Socrates and Aristotle, it predates them by over 500 years. And so what we're taught as the great philosophers of life, they're actually late coming to the philosophical party of life. They're actually late coming to this because the Hebrew people, with their book Ecclesiastes, beat them to the punch many, many years before. As a matter of fact, the great philosophers that we learn of in school take a lot of their wisdom thinking from the book of Ecclesiastes. Categorically now, uh, just to give you a little perspective and thought about how uh, the book of Ecclesiastes works into the Bible is very important. Uh, what you have to understand is that uh, the Bible, many scholars over the, over the centuries have taken a look at the Bible, uh, especially the Old Testament part of the Bible, and they divide up this very big book into broad categories. I don't know if you know this, but there are sweeping categories that scholars and people who study the Bible put the Bible books into because each book of the 39 Old Testament books, each book kind of deals with with the God-man relationship differently, right? Each book kind of has a different emphasis and theme to it. And so it gets kind of divided up into some broad categories. And I want to help you out by putting these up on the screen for you. And the book of Ecclesiastes is found in one of these categories. And so uh, the first five books of the Bible, now you may want to write this down because one of my goals uh, with old school, anytime we do it, is simply to raise our level of understanding of the Bible. Is that okay if we do that? Just we want to raise our understanding so we can learn together. You all with me on that? Okay, so if you know this, I don't mean to be insulting. We're kind of starting at the beginning. That's okay. We're going to just raise our collective learning together. You all with me? Is that cool? Okay, so uh, the first five books of the Bible, they're called the law books. They're the books of the law, right? And it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they speak of the the very beginning of the God-man relationship. God was developing a new community in this place called Earth. And he wanted wanted man to relate to him properly. And so he gives them this set called the law. And it was a set of principles and rules in which they were to live and to govern themselves and to do life by, right? And so we call those books the book of the law. And they're revealed in the first five books. And then, uh, once you get past the first five, you come into the book of Joshua, and they're called the historical books. And the historical books in the Bible, they, they, they tell the narrative, they tell the, the story of the rise of the people of God from, from out of slavery to literally becoming a great nation, a united nation, a prosperous nation because of their obedience to God. But the historical books not only uh, chronicalize the rise of the nation because of their obedience, but it also does something else. What? What is the uh, something else? It also talks about the fall of the nation of Israel and why it fell because they left obedience to God. They no longer did life God's way. Maybe something we can learn as a nation, right? And so the historical books are very, very important. But then we come to the wisdom books. And this is where Ecclesiastes is found in what we would call the wisdom books. Uh, the wisdom books are, are Job, Psalms, and Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And, and these books are, are the practical books. This is the pots and pans of life. This is the nitty-gritty. This gets into the details of how to live life according to the way God wants you to lead life. It gives you very great details, bits of wisdom about how to act in relationships and how to act with your money. And so if you were to go through these, the book of Job, it, it talks about the relationship with God through human suffering. Have you ever read the book of Job? Ever been around that? Then you know what I'm talking about. It gives, because all of us suffer, all of us go through trial and tragedy in our life. Anybody not gone through any? Then you just haven't lived long enough because it's coming. Okay, it will come your way. In the book of Job, it tells us how to relate to God through suffering. 
Got it? Okay, and so the next book, uh, Psalms, is, it, it deals with the human relationship with God. It, tells, it talks about the human emotions and, and expresses all of the inner feelings to God through writing and through songs. And we call that the book of Psalms. Uh, the book of Proverbs gives very nitty-gritty details about how to honor God with all areas of your life, your money, your work habits, uh, your sexuality. Uh, it, it gives very nitty-gritty details about how to live life that honors God. And then the book of Ecclesiastes, which we're going to be studying this series, deals with finding meaning for your life in a very meaningless existence. And it's a great book, and we're going to dive deep into that. And then the Song of Solomon, the book of Song of Solomon, is finding uh, God's perspective on love and pleasure and relationships. It's an incredible book. We're going to hit that in a few weeks as well. And so these are called the wisdom books, right? Now, uh, after the wisdom books, you come to the books, what we call the prophetic books. And these are the ones that bear all the names, right, of all the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the like, right? And, and these books chronicalize how God raises up men to be spiritual leaders among his people. And these men, their, their role, their job was to, to speak of the promises of God and to give the warnings of God. It was to call people to live for the glory of God. And we call these the prophetic books, and they're very, very important, and we're going to get to those much later in, in this little series. So, y'all with me so far? Okay, so um, let's, let's dive deep into the book of Ecclesiastes because um, I want you to see the big picture, but I want to dive deep and specifically into Ecclesiastes. Now, when you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, if you're just reading it cold turkey, um, I, I'll tell you this, the, the style of writing, it rambles a little bit. It is like a guy is on a rant, and it, he just goes, he wanders. If a thought comes to his mind, he just whoo, lets it fly, right? Uh, and it's sometimes very difficult to grasp or understand um, th this, this book because in the end, I, I, I've read it several times through, even studying for this. It is just depressing. All the way through, it is depressing. And you go, wow, why am I even breathing by the end of this little book, right? Uh, and so it, it kind of winds its way through a lot of the deep, deep parts of the human emotion. There's not a lot of hope in this book. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a very interesting book because as far as I can tell, this is very interesting. The book of Ecclesiastes, as far as I can tell, is the only book in the Bible, the only book in the Bible where God seems to be totally silent. Totally silent. This book is a monologue about a man's observations of life. It is not the typical God-man going back and forth. It's not a dialogue in any way. As a matter of fact, this, this, this book does not um, give us any direct command of God or direct sayings from God like much of the scripture does. This is really a one-sided book. But that does not mean that God, his wisdom is not absent from this book at all. As a matter of fact, if you were to go through these pages, you'll see that God's wisdom is on every page of this book. Uh, as a matter of fact, the writer of this book says that, that he is speaking the wisdom of God. He is inspired by God, he says. As a matter of fact, he, he speaks at the end of the book how God is his shepherd and God is leading him as he's trying to teach us something about how life works. But it's very, very interesting, right? Um, and the other thing I think is, is interesting about this book, if you, you look at the title of the book, it doesn't bear anybody's name. Most of the books of the Bible, they have somebody's name, right? Name a book of the Bible that has somebody's name in it. Just name one. Right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the names are everywhere. And why are most of the books in the Bible named after a name of a person? Well, it's because either they wrote the book or they were the central character in the book. Y'all get this? And so like you got a book like Esther. She didn't necessarily write the book, but it was really the story 
of her life and her obedience to God, her relationship to God. And so she's like the main character. But what's interesting uh, about this little book called Ecclesiastes, it doesn't bear the writer's name at all. It doesn't identify the writer's name, but what it does is it identifies the role. Listen, the role of the writer, the role of the one who wrote it. Now, follow me on this. The name of this book we get it from the Greek translation. The English we get comes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew name of this book. So it goes from Hebrew to Greek in the English. And our English name is Ecclesiastes, right? Um, now this word Ecclesiastes comes directly from a Greek word that sounds strangely close. It is Ecclesiastes. So when our writers in English kind of get around to translating this, can you put that up there? Um, it, it, it literally, it's spelt a little different in, in Greek, and that's it. And we thought, that's a cool name. We're just going to stick with that. We're not even going to find an English word for it. We're just going to go with that. And literally, Ecclesiastes, it means preacher. It means preacher. Or one who preaches to you. Um, it, it literally means the one who gathers wisdom and brings it before the people. The preacher. Right? That's, that's the role of the preacher. He's supposed to gather wisdom from God and bring it before the pe- uh, people. And so this word, Ecclesiastes, um, the Greek word Ecclesiastes, it comes from another Greek word. There's a slight difference. But the root of this word is the word ecclesia. And the word ecclesia is where we get the word church from. And so the implication of the word Ecclesiastes is the preacher for the church, the preacher who's supposed to gather wisdom from God. And so you see it coming, right? When you read Ecclesiastes, he's saying, get ready to be preached at, because I'm going to tell you about how life works, how it's supposed to work. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew uh, title for this book is, is an interesting word. It's, it's, um, so Ecclesiastes comes from this Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is kohileth. Kohileth. And it literally means the one who brings wisdom, the one who gathers wisdom. It means teacher, preacher. And what's interesting is that this word is only used seven times in the entire Bible. Seven times in the entire Bible. And they're all found in the book of Ecclesiastes. But they have a slight different meaning when we read it inside of the text. And so as you hopefully go back at home and you read this book, you're going to read seven different times the word teacher in this book. Anytime you read the word teacher, you are reading the Hebrew word kohileth, which means the one who is trying to give you wisdom, the one who's trying to tell you how life works. Pause. He's saying, listen to me. Listen to me. I'm going to tell you something that you're not going to get from anywhere else. Friends, this is why we gather at church, right? My guess is you come into this place, my family comes into this place expecting to hear a different kind of wisdom, right? We come expecting to learn, but not like learn like we learn from church or school or to learn from books or from television, right? We come here expecting a different kind of learning, am I right? We come expecting wisdom that comes from God. And so he's saying, be ready to hear wisdom that comes from God. This book has much to teach us about life, and I hope that you'll have an open heart to this. Now, um, y'all good for that? Amen? You ready to learn from God? Um, So this book, the author of Ecclesiastes, is simply referred to as the teacher, but the author does have a name. He is a real person. 
And the author of the book of Ecclesiastes is a man named Solomon. Anybody ever hear of King Solomon? Anybody? King Solomon is the name. Here is the opening line of the ancient book of Ecclesiastes. This is exactly how it reads. It says, verse 1, these are the words of the, say it, teacher, Kohileth. These are the words of the one who has gathered wisdom so the church can hear it. King David's son. Who was King David's son? Solomon, who ruled in Jerusalem. Now, Solomon, didn't, we're going to learn, didn't, didn't need any introduction at all. He doesn't need much of an introduction. That's all it takes, right? Um, but the scripture has a great deal to say about the life of Solomon. Now, you could go uh, way back in the historical books that we just pointed to up in, in there, and you can read his entire life story. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. It is worth investing your time to read the life story of Solomon as found in the, in the historical books in the Bible. Um, it's an incredible read. It's a compelling read. Uh, it's not only just an action-packed kind of a read, but it is a book where, or a, a story where you can go, wow, that man did some things right, and that man did some things wrong. He got some of it screwed up in a very, very big way. Because his bibliography, if you were to go back and read it, it's like the making of, a, of some scandalous, epic blockbuster movie from Hollywood. It really is. His father was the great King David. His mother was the infamous Bathsheba. Okay, ring a bell to anybody? Um, they, they, uh, who was married at the time to another man, which he had an affair with David, and it resulted in a child. Uh, and later, Solomon comes from that union as well. Uh, and, and if you remember correctly, uh, David had Bathsheba's husband killed in order to cover up his affair with her. So Solomon's life did not start off so good, did it? Kind of messy to say the least, right? And you think you got family dynamic issues, Right? Try that one on for size, right? Uh, and so we learn, studying his life, though, that as Solomon grew up as a young man, uh, he fell in love with God. He was a man of great devotion before God. Um, he was fully devoted, the scripture says, early on in his life. And as a young man, when he eventually takes the throne from his father and becomes king over all the lands of Israel, um, he was a man who, who was excited to lead his people toward God. And we learn a very interesting thing about Solomon. When he was young, uh, in, in full devotion to his relationship with God, he asked God for something through a prayer. Um, God appeared to him uh, at this moment when he was taking over uh, the kingdom of Israel, the, the scripture records that Solomon had a vision. And God appears to Solomon in this dream, in this vision, right? And I don't know if it was like, oh, he's like sitting there eating Taco Bell and like it happens, I'm not sure. But, or if he was at night sleeping, I, I don't know. But, but the deal is he sees this vision of God and God says, you ask Solomon for anything, anything because of your devotion, because I see the way that you love me. I see the way that you honor me. I want to give you a great gift. Name it and I'll give it to you. And Solomon, in his young age, he asked for something that many of us would not think to ask for. Um, my guess is that many of us have asked of God many things, right? Uh, most of us have presented some sort of Christmas wish list to God. But Solomon did not present God a Christmas wish list. He says, God, if you could give me one thing, give me wisdom on how to love your people and how to serve your people, and how to make your name great. And so Solomon takes over the kingdom with literally the blessing of God in his life. And he starts off flying high. Um, next to Jesus, he was arguably the wisest man 
who ever lived. He, he was the master, a master on innumerable subjects. He was a great military strategist. History reveals that he was a political mastermind. He was an economic genius. He united and expanded his kingdom, and he brought his people to live at unbelievable levels of economic prosperity. He was a prolific writer as well. He wrote over 3,000 proverbs of wisdom. He wrote over 1,000 songs. And so we think we got some good musicians in, in our church. This guy wrote 1,000 songs, and we still read the lyrics of those songs today, right? Um, his power was unparalleled as a king. Oh, he was king over Israel for 40 years. And in ancient times, to be a king for 40 years was a big deal. Big deal. He was loved by his people. He brought his people, like I said, incredible prosperity. Kings from, and queens from all over the world, history records that they would go to Solomon to help, help with problems in their kingdom. Why? What were they doing? They were seeking wisdom from Solomon. They would say, hey, I got some issues going on, and I just need an audience with the king. And so history records that all these kings and queens would go and visit Solomon. Solomon was also a master builder. He oversaw massive construction projects. One of the greatest construction projects in human history was orchestrated by Solomon. That would be the building of the temple in Jerusalem. It took seven years for the people of God to build God's temple. And then after that, Solomon set out to building the, the greatest palace that the world had ever known at the time. It took 13 years for his palace to be completed, which is a little skewed. It took seven years for God's palace, 13 years for his. You see the problem developing? Anybody? So Solomon, we would say, was one wise man, and God blessed him. But I'm going to say something to you, and you may want to write this down. He was the dumbest wise man ever. He was the dumbest, wisest man ever. Because this man, who had it all, who started out so well, who had it up and to the right. He had it going on. He had his priorities locked in. He had his perspectives locked in. He began to throw that all away because his history records that he eventually compromised his faith. He did not finish well. He did not finish well in any way, shape, or form. He compromised over and over again. He compromised his integrity. He compromised his value. He compromised his own family. He ruined his own family by going directly against God's will by taking another woman in marriage. He ended up not just taking another woman. If you read his story, he ended up taking 700 other women to be his wives. And because 700 other women were not enough, he takes an additional 300 concubines like you do. Right? Now, I want you to think about this. Uh, men, do, do, do you think an extra 999 women in your life would complicate your life a little bit? The answer to that is, is yes, men. It's yes. Uh, it is a bad idea. And some of you are going, well, I'd like to try that idea out for myself. You know, it would not end well uh, in any way, shape, or form. Um, do you realize that Solomon could have eaten three square meals a day with a different wife or concubine every day for an entire year. That's crazy. That is crazy. That would not end well, at least in my home, amen? Women, that would not end well, right? Uh, but that was how Solomon started his fall. And boy, did he fall. Listen to some of the words that describe the end of one of the greatest men that this world has ever known. Listen to how his story ends. 
Friends, it does not end well. Listen carefully. It's found in, in one of the historical books, 1 Kings, chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. It says, in Solomon's old age, they turned the they as his wives. His wives. Listen, it, they, they turned his heart um, to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord, his God, as his father David had been. Solomon worshiped Astareth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In this way, Solomon did evil in the Lord's sight. And listen, he refused to follow the Lord. What's this word? Completely. Completely. As his father David had done. Some of us are right there. We have enough of God to feel guilty in our lives. But we go home and we compromise. And we are led astray to other gods. And our other gods may not come in the form of statues. But there are other gods in our life. And we are not living fully devoted to him. Friends, it did not end well for the wisest man who ever lived outside of Jesus. And do you think that will end well for any of us? It won't, friends. It won't in any way. This is a tragedy of epic proportions. Gifted with unparalleled wisdom as history salutatorian, second only to Jesus Christ himself. Solomon, listen, he had devoted his life, listen, he had devoted his life to answering the greatest and deepest questions in life. Uh, as we're gonna learn, he, he gave great insight to some of the most troubling situations. He gave great insight to struggling teenagers and a parent stuck in midlife crisis at the same time. He, he taught the poor how to rise out of poverty and, how, and he taught the super rich how to live open-handed with a generous heart. Uh, he, he gave incredible insight to the nature of true beauty in this world and in a world that is consumed with skin-deep beauty, and he pleaded with men, and he pleaded with men who could not seem to resist the temptations of that skin-deep beauty. He gave warning after warning after warning about living foolishly, and yet we learn in his life that by the end of his life, he recklessly dove into every single temptation that life had to offer him. Everyone. He, he literally kind of uh, tried out the old adage, don't knock it till you try it. Oh, and he tried it. We're going to see that he tried it with reckless abandon. And friends, it did not end well for him. I like how Mark Driscoll um, describes King Solomon in one, on his blog site. He says this. He says, if you could take Bill Gates, you all know who Bill Gates is? Right? If you could take Bill Gates, Stephen Hawking, and Hugh Hefner and somehow morph them into one man and simultaneously make that one man the Pope and the President at the same time, you could name him Solomon. <laughs> Genius, right? Mark goes on to describe Solomon's life like this. Solomon's, Solomon is a story of a prodigal son. Born into affluence of his father David, Solomon departed the ways of his God to indulge his own pointless passions. The fact that he wrote Ecclesiastes indicates that he recognizes the folly of his wayward ways, returned to the Lord, and wrote an honest biography, autobiography of an empty and shallow life that he had discovered apart from God. Solomon sought the best that life had to offer and then realized that, that nothing rivals life simply lived in obedience to God. It's true, friends. This is exactly what we're going to learn, that Solomon realized 
the meaningless of it all. Um, bored and burned out at the end of his life, Solomon summed up his great life, his, this, this great experiment life that he had with one word that appears over 40 times in this book. It's a word that comes over and over and over and you cannot miss it. But if you do miss it, friends, we, we, we run the risk of the same result of Solomon. If we miss this key word, we run the risk of ending up the same way that Solomon ended up. The book opens and closes with this Hebrew word over and over, and it says from the very beginning of the book and the very end, it's this Hebrew word, hibel, hibel. And, and no single English word can quite describe it, but I want to read the opening and the end of this book, the bookends of this book to you, because it describes where it goes. Listen to what he writes in the first chapter, the second verse. He says, everything is, say this word, meaningless, hibel. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. And here's how the book draws to an end in the 12th chapter. He says this, everything is, says the teacher, completely meaningless. He goes through the story of his life, all the craziness of his life. And at the beginning, he goes, I'm about ready to tell you something that's crazy because it got really meaningless really fast in my life. And after recounting the whole deal, he comes to the end and he repeats the exact same phrase verbatim. At the end of it all, it ended meaningless for him. Friends, I want you to realize this word hibel, it's a complicated word. It's so deep. It's so heavy. The Hebrew word here is a very powerful word. It means more than just meaningless. It means uh, vanity. It carries this idea of an emptiness or a shallowness to it all. Hebel refers to how life is, is like a vapor and how it's breathed in and it's breathed out. It talks about the elusiveness and the quickly passing phase that we call life. The teacher, friends, is teaching that life must be pursued with great urgency or it will become meaningless to us. That we can't live life haphazardly. The great teacher is teaching us that if we are not careful, we're gonna breathe in and breathe out and it's gonna pass us by and all the things that make life meaningful are gonna be missed by us. And he says, do not be like that. Do not let that happen. Over 40 times in the text, he says, this too is meaningless. It's like chasing wind. And he says, most people spend most of their days on a stupid stationary bike, pedaling and pedaling and pedaling and pedaling and pedaling. And it goes nowhere for them. Nothing changes. Nothing gets better. There's nothing great for the kingdom of God accomplished in your life. And he says, that's a fool's errand. He says, do not let it end that way. Now, I cannot prove it to you, but I believe that Solomon wrote this, this book called Ecclesiastes near the end of his life. Because as you read his books, they change, right? He writes Song of Solomon when he's young, when he's in love, when passion rules the day for him. And that's the book we all go, woo, yeah. Then he rolls into the book of Proverbs because he spends the middle portion of his life gathering wisdom, trying to do it right. But then along the way, he starts to compromise. And he writes the book of Ecclesiastes looking back 
saying, oh boy, did I make some mistakes. Oh, did I screw it up. I screwed this up big time. Friends, he, he writes the most brutal, painful, and yet helpful book that any young person in this room could ever read. If you're like under 30 or maybe 40 in this room, you need to go home this week and like read this book like 12 times because he pleads with you. You better make right choices when you're young. You better start good and end good. You better stay the course. You better be wise with your days. And if you're like me, if you're a little bit older now, this book is an incredible reminder of what's really important, what really ought to grip our hearts. It's a book that will remind us of what is of great value. It changes our perspective on things. It keeps us locked into what matters most in this life. My hope, my prayer is that you guys go home and read this for yourself and let God's spirit speak into your life because of the words that David or Solomon wrote some 3,000 years ago. So let me end by taking you into one more understanding of this book. Um, if we go right back to the very beginning, there is no doubt uh, from the very beginning, you'll see that this book is dark and it's depressing. Um, I mean, this one of the wisest men ever, he just lets it all fly about all the mistakes in life he made. This is not like have a nice day Bible type of book at all. Um, but at the very beginning, there's a clue that's dropped into this writing that, that if we miss it, we will miss the purpose of this book. We will miss the meaning of this book. And I'm just going to read a little verse for you and see if you can pick it out. Because it's right at the beginning. He says in verse 2, he says, everything is meaningless. It's all completely meaningless. But then he says this, very interesting. He says, verse 3, first chapter, what do people get for all of their hard work? And then say this phrase with me, under the sun, Say this, under the sun. You ever like feel that way? Like, man, this sucks. I go to work every day. And I do the same thing every day. And I, I'm riding the bike every day and I'm not getting anywhere. I'm getting nowhere fast, right? Um, but the phrase is under the sun. And it's dropped in, I think, on purpose. As a matter of fact, this phrase is the second most used phrase in the entire book. The first one is meaningless. But this one's used 29 or 30 times. Uh, when you, I was reading this, I kept going, there's a reason he keeps saying it's under the sun. It's under the sun. Because I think this phrase, under the sun, teaches us something. The teacher is saying that there is a perspective that is earthly. There is a perspective that is temporal. There's a perspective that is short-term, that leads to meaninglessness. It's the under-the-sun perspective. It's what counts here uh, right now in life that, that matters most. And he's saying, no, it doesn't. He's saying, no, it doesn't. He's saying, you've got to have a new perspective if you're ever going to find life, if you're ever going to find real meaning and real hope in your life. If you just lock into what's under this sun, you're going to have trouble in this life. You are going to end meaningless. He says, you've got to have something that's more than under the sun. What we learn from this book is he says it has to have something that's beyond the sun of this world. He, he literally says it involves the son of God. He says it takes faith to make life purposeful, to make life count, to make life meaningful. He says it takes faith. And if you don't find faith, he says you are going to miss something. 
You see, friends, my, my hope is that you'll join me over the next several weeks and that you're going to be willing to dive deep into the learnings of this book because this book, book points out that we, it takes something deeper in our soul to find meaning than just working and building things and buying things and having pleasurable things in our life. We're going to learn together that it takes something way more than under the sun to make that a reality for our life, to make meaning a reality for our life. This book is, uh, it's an old book, but it's not a boring book. And it's not an irrelevant book at all. I, I really do. I hope that you will join me for every part of this series because it is so good. As a matter of fact, I like how one writer writes it. He says this, Ecclesiastes, he writes, is not some old book. Ecclesiastes is an eternal book. And there's a vast difference between the two. An old book gets old. An eternal book never gets old. And Ecclesiastes is not an old book. It's an eternal book. The old book is timely. An eternal book is timeless. An old book is for yesterday. An eternal book is for every day. And this book called Ecclesiastes that God gives us in the scripture is a book that is a survival book for everyday living. It is a book for everyday life. It is a book that tells our soul how to have meaning. And it will point you, undoubtedly, to the requirement of faith in your life. And so I don't know where you are in your relationship with God. But my hope and my prayer is that you will turn to faith, even through this little book, even today, that the Spirit of God would be talking to you and challenging you in your soul to want more. You know, Jesus one time said it it like this. He says, I have come to give you life and life to the fullest. Jesus says, I am the more that your soul is looking for. And I hope that you discover that through this book. Amen? Amen. Hey, I want to um, give you four lines. That's all. And I know anytime a preacher says four points, you think like it's another hour. I get it, okay? But I just want to tell you four things that I've observed in this book and that we're going to learn together. All right? Would that be cool? I'm just going to foreshadow some of the things we're going to talk about together as I read this book. And here they are. I'm just going to read them to you very simply. We're going to learn um, that we need to live life, that we need to live life in the fear of God. Not being afraid of God, like, oh, he's out to get me. But in this way of reverencing God, that we need to walk with him like a young son walks in the respect of his father who can protect him and love him and take care of him, but also can pop him if need be. I think we're going to learn that in this book. The second thing I'm learning is that we receive all good things in life as if they are a gift from God. To remember that everything that comes through your hands is from God. And all things that are good should be enjoyed as if God has given to them, to you. What a beautiful thing to keep in right perspective, isn't it? That every good thing that we have in life comes from the hand of our Father who loves us. Here's here's the third thing that we need to reflect on the fact that God will judge the righteous and the wicked. In the end of the day, that there will be a separation, that our lives are held accountable. It is unmistakable in this little book that our lives, your life, my life, that we are held accountable to God. 
And that should change the way that we live. That should motivate the way that we live. It should encourage our walk with God. Not set it up in a fearful sort of a way, but it should motivate us to live for his glory in our life. And here's the last thing. Real quick, is number four is, remember that God presently, right now, right now, reviews the quality of every person's life. Do, do, not just like at the end of our day. You know, a lot of people go, oh, I'll get it right before I die. No, look at me, friends. Look at me, please. God expects something from your life right now. Right now. Like, not tomorrow, like right now. He expects you to be part of his kingdom, to build his kingdom, to give him glory with your days, to not waste them, to make sure they add up to something great in your life. And you have to start now for that. You can't go, well, uh, I'm just starting my career or I'm just in high school or I don't really know what I'm gonna do yet. No, 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 no. God is looking at you right now and going, I expect something good from your life. I expect something great for your life. I've given you the good gifts to make it happen. Now go make it happen. It's a pretty motivating thought, isn't it? We're gonna talk about all these things and more over the next several weeks. Are you gonna join me? Are you gonna go for it with me? All right. So if you wouldn't mind, uh, could we pray together and then we'll get out of here? Um, so God, tonight, um, a little bit of a somber mood, but sometimes that's okay. We need that. Um, I pray, God, that your spirit, no matter where we are, would reveal your heart to ours. God, that you would use your word found in a very ancient book to to, to challenge us, to motivate us, to somehow to find real meaning in a meaningless existence. So God, may your spirit come We invite you into this place. Speak, oh God. Speak into our lives. For your child is listening. Amen.